and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it's Tuesday, June 27th, 2023. Doesn't matter though whether it's June or 2023 or Tuesday, there are certain themes in America and American history that come up time and time again. Uh, last week, we talked with Garrett Neiman, um, who has a new book out, uh, Rich White Men, What It Takes to Uproot the Old Boys Club and Transform America. Race in America Dominates. Later today, I'm doing a show with David Newitt, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy, which, of course, has a strongly racial and racist element. And uh, we're doing a show Right now on Love and Hate with my guest, uh, Wesley Lowry, who's won um, a Pulitzer Prize, one of America's leading journalists, has a new book out, American Whitelash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Wesley is joining us from New York City. Wesley, this issue just won't go away, will it? No. Uh, well, I mean, it is baked into our very DNA in a lot of ways, and so it's unsurprising that we see this recurring and uh, being an ongoing issue. You, the subtitle of your book is particularly interesting, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Are you suggesting that what you call an American white lash is the cost of progress? So in a way, American white lash is not such a bad story? Uh, well, I think that <laughs> there are a few different suggestions there, right? If if the if you're asking, am I suggesting that there's an inevitable backlash to progress, then I think the answer is yes. Is that backlash not that bad? Well, the answer is no. It's it cost real people their lives. Right. And so it's deadly serious and very real. But what I think when we look at American history, we see the story of two diametrically opposed forces locked in a tug of war with each other. And that those are the forces of American white supremacy, the racialized caste system that we codified in our laws starting in the 1700s, and the forces of anti-racism from the slave revolts, the abolitionists, to the civil rights movements, to, to the, those currently fighting for a more equitable democracy. And that, that battle is a push and pull, and that each time the anti-racist side wins and wins significant battles, it in some ways strengthens those uh, who wish to hold on. And so uh, what we've seen is time and time again, uh, moments of perceived advancement towards multiracial democracy have been met with both policy and interpersonal uh, backlash and violence. And very often that violence means people lose their lives. And is the latest chapter, Wesley, or you seem to suggest in, in your new book, American Whitelash, that the latest chapter was triggered or begun with the election of Barack Obama in 2008? Well, I think that it can be understood through that. I think there's two things that happened in 2008. You have the election of a black president, um, and you also have the census forecast that predicts that by 2050, the country will be a majority racial minority because of Hispanic immigration. And I don't think you can understand the current nativist movement that is one of the most powerful movements in our politics without understanding uh, how anxiety-inducing those developments have been the feeling and the idea among many Americans that 
they've lost the country that they had, that things have changed indefinitely and that they are going to end up being the losers of history. And it's why such naked and obvious xenophobic appeals, build the wall, keep the Muslims out, are so politically effective in this moment. In terms of analyzing that movement, headlines today, as always, Donald Trump is in it. Um, There's also a headline about Ron DeSantis arriving in New Hampshire, trying to steal some of the Trump vote. Another headline about Fox News and Greg Gutfield now having his own show. Do you distinguish in what you call this nativist uh, movement, or would you lump Trump and Fox News and Gutfield and DeSantis? Are they all essentially the same thing? I think there are distinctions. I mean, look, Donald Trump is the leader of the nativist movement. His his political platform is that we should build a wall to keep brown people out of the country. It's definitionally nativist. There's not any other uh, way to describe uh, Donald Trump and his politics. I, I think what is true is that more mainstream American conservatism has always had segments and components of it that played to these ideas. But what we see is that the party itself has been uh, has has been seized by this portion of its electorate, right? We get caught in, I think, sometimes silly debates about, well, exactly what percentage of Trump supporters are prejudiced or exactly what, it, it doesn't really matter, right? They're, each person who is voting for Donald Trump or someone like him is voting in favor of these policies and of this program. Um, what we see and what we have seen is a segment of the Republican Party and the conservative movement that is reactionary and nativist. That reactionary nature is not just to racial advancement. Um, it's to immigration. It's to urbanism. It's to technological advances. It's to changing societal norms and understandings of issues of gender and sexuality and race. Right? And... So what we're seeing is a a conservative reactionary nativist movement uh, that has shown it has the ability to hijack one of our major political parties. Wesley, can one be a nostalgist for an American, an America of the past, an imaginary America, a better America, without being racist, without being essentially uh, nostalgic, for a, a, a world where your own particular race dominated? Um, I think it's possible to be nostalgic for some cultural or societal constructs, right? It, I might be nostalgic for a world where my family ate dinner at 6 p.m. and then we all sat around the TV to watch the news, right? It's thing, something that might have been familiar in the 80s or 90s, but is not necessarily true today, right? I can hold that without that being racialized, right? But what I do think is that in our mainstream politics, we see nostalgia and, as you noted, a fictionalized version of our history wielded as a weapon and wielded as a means of mobilizing and motivating people um, in this reactionary sense to support policies, to discriminate against discriminate against people who are different than them. 
And so I don't think there's an absolute there, right? I think all of us have things that we imagine would have been fun to live in. Um, but what I, what I do think is true is when we see politicians and political movements sell fictions about what our world has been like and what our country has been like. And I think that we see that pretty frequently and pretty often. It's interesting. We did a show last month with a historian who noted that African-American slaves, even before the end of slavery, before the, the Civil War, embraced the promise of America, the promise of the Constitution, the promise of freedom. How does that fit in, in terms of, you obviously focus on the American white lash, but what about, shall we say, the the backlash, the black lash to the white lash. What's your sense of that? Should that make uh, non-white Americans more or less nationalistic, more or less embrace the promise of America, which obviously in practice hasn't always been realized? I don't think there's any group in American history that has more embraced the promise of America. Um, and they've done it in part by writing books like this, critiquing America. Right, which, which is the promise of America, the ability for us to wake up in a society we think is unjust and to labor and endeavor to make it better. Um, I don't know that that's nationalistic per se. I think in American context, nationalism and patriotism are very racialized concepts very often. Um, we The last time that we had true nationalism that way would have been in the world wars in which we had black Americans go off and serve their country only to come to return to be discriminated against. Right. And, right. So and we, we've done shows on the second class status of black American soldiers, both in the first and the second world wars. And then they returned to get lynched and send their kids, kids to desegregated schools. Right. And so again, in the tug of war analogy, it's unquestionably true that when, white supremacist forces pull when there's a white lash that that is going to spawn a new generation of anti-racism activism of thinking of efforts right but you know i i don't know that <laughs> i i don't know that that then turns it around and makes it a good thing right um it's great that you have anti-violence activists it would be better if there wasn't violence in the first place racism doesn't have a a good vibe, a good name, e even on the right. I mean, Donald Trump would never appear on this show. But if he did, if I was to guess, he would say, I don't have an ounce. I don't have an inch of racism in me, blah, blah, blah. I love black people. DeSantis would probably say the same. And Fox News is not explicitly racist, although the dog whistling element is self-evident. How would you respond, Wesley, to the Trumps and the DeSantis's and their supporters and say, we're not racist. We've got nothing against black Americans. In fact, some black Americans or Hispanic Americans vote for us. We just want another kind of America. Well, first, I would note that Fox News airs many explicitly racist things. Tucker Carlson's show was explicitly racist. Um, and, and so there's no, you know, so, so in that case, the I, I would quibble at the premise a little bit, but to take to take the question, I, I wouldn't get into a conversation with Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis about their personal prejudice because I don't really care about it. Um, what I would talk to someone like Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis about 
would be the question of, well, all right, Ron DeSantis, let's sit and let's talk about why uh, you're proposing or you're, you're promising to end birthright citizenship for immigrants. Something that, by the way, you couldn't even do as president. So why do you believe that that is a effective political messaging and political campaign? Um, does that not play to white American anxiety about immigration and demographic change? Um, why Donald Trump? Do you believe that your messaging around building a wall on the southern border or your messaging around banning Muslims from coming into the United States of America, how are those not racially discriminatory policies? You know, people want to get into debates about their, per I don't care how many black friends Donald Trump has, it's actually not particularly relevant to a conversation about his policies and the outcomes, right? The, what, what is relevant is using the platform that he has, what is he saying and what are the outcome of what he's saying? Donald Trump and other leaders of his party and of his movement, because they're not all Republicans, have routinely used their platforms to dehumanize people who look different than them. And that dehumanization leads to violence. In that sense, I guess your book, uh, Carol Anderson, I'm sure you're familiar with her work. She wrote a book, White Rage, a few oh, years yeah. ago. Um, you're very much on the same page. So what, what is your book, uh, American White Lash, add to what Carol argued in White Rage? And she's been on the show recently, by the way, talking about voting rights. Sure. Uh, and I cite Carol's work very early on. I think White Rage is, is very foundational, right? But Carol's work was about was she her book looks historically at the ways that in which in response to the perception of black advancement white americans have enacted laws and taken steps to reinforce a racialized caste system what my book looks at is how as that is happening how political movements use the dehumanization who's dehumanizing rhetoric that plays into the hands of avowed white supremacists who commit acts of violence. Carol, in her book, writes about how, how she's not writing about people who wear Klan hoods and who burn crosses. My book is about people who wear Klan hoods and burn crosses. And so there are books, there, there are works that are in conversation with each other covering different things. I'm not sure if you're familiar with a new uh, book, The Age of Insurrection, The Radical Rights Assault on American Democracy. is going to appear on the show uh, in about half an hour. Um, but is The Age of Insurrection, particularly January 6th, that's central to your narrative, isn't it, about American white lash? Should January 6th and, and these insurrectionary movements, particularly on the West Coast, in Oregon, in Portland, should they be thought of? particularly in terms of, of, of your argument in white lash? Well, I don't think they're central in that my argument exists prior to January 6th, right? That, that January 6th is the last thing that happens in my book. Um, but I, I think that we do have to understand what is it that creates the circumstances in which someone is willing to prevent the peaceful transfer of, of power in American democracy? What is it that so bounds someone 
with a religious fervor to their movement leader, the way that Donald Trump's movement is bound to him. And it's very clear that what is binding these people together is the way he plays to and exploits the fear of white Americans. His movement is almost exclusively white. Um, to this fear that the country has changed in a way that they can't change it back, that they are going to be the losers of history. And we can try to pretend that it's any number of other things. And in fact, we have. Many of our liberal institutions have tried to pretend that there are all these other explanations for what's going on, when in fact, I think the history makes it pretty clear what's going on. So your book is really a, a history of a, what you call a changing nation from Obama to January 6th. You, as I said, you've won the Pulitzer Prize. You've written other books as well. Um, uh, they can't kill us all. Ferguson, Baltimore, and a new era in American racial justice. You also read a, a short book on, on Ferguson and another book on uh, voting. How would you broadly, and I know this is the core of the book, how would you define this period between Obama and January 6th, particularly obviously in the context of Ferguson um, and the emergence of Black Lives Matter? Well, what we see is we see a response to a black presidency. And so on the one hand, uh, you see a movement that arises in the second half of the Obama presidency, led largely by black young people, aimed at achieving beyond what just the representational victory of a black presidency could provide, the desire to push beyond what Barack Obama could bring. Um, and that's Black Lives Matter. At the same time, you see a rising nativist movement across the country, including components of the Tea Party movement, um, components of what becomes the MAGA movement and Donald Trump, that is viscerally opposed to a black presidency. And for reasons they cannot always articulate, for reasons that are not uh, ideologically comprehensible that, that, or consistent, but rather uh, that are about this idea that the country has changed in a way that, that they cannot change it back. And I think that what we've seen in the decade and a half since the election of a black president has been the thrashing in response to that perception of, of black advancement. The subtitle of your book is A Changing Nation Rather Than A Changing Politics. It seems as if in, in many ways American politics is frozen, the parties, the characters involved, whether it's Biden or Trump or DeSantis. Has America changed politically or is it just the nation and particularly its cultural and demographic makeup that's changed in this period you focus on in your new book from, from 2008 to uh, 2021? Yeah, I don't think the nation's changed politically very much at all. Um, certainly not in this era. We've got an almost exclusively white political party that wins elections when it can mobilize conservative reactionary forces. And we have a messy multiracial party that is at war with itself about how reactionary or progressive it should be. Um, and that was true in the 90s. It's true in the 80s, it's true in the 70s, right? That we are still living in an era, in a post-civil rights political moment 
where there actually isn't massive change in the politics year to year, election to election, cycle to cycle. What has changed and what is changing is the country itself. And those changes in the country change and influence what parts of those politics have more salience uh, than others. So is that messy multiracial party, of course, the Democratic Party, which seems to be fighting over race for generations ever since I've been here, certainly with Clinton and so on. Is that itself an anachronism or do we need a new perhaps party uh, on the left, uh, Wesley, that reflects what you call this changing nation? Well, I, I don't know that. I, I, I don't know that. I guess, I guess there are two different questions there, right? Because the first part is that the reality is under our political system as it exists, there is no pathway to any type of political victory or power through a third party. And so if the aim of such people were, were political victories, then the worst thing they could do would be to start their own party. Um, the, what is true is that we live in a world, in a reality, in a country where because we have a two-party binary that people who hold very different beliefs and have very different backgrounds are all clouded together. The reality is that there's almost no other nation in the world in which Joe Biden and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez would be in the same political party. There's almost no nation in the world in which Marjorie Taylor Greene and Mitt Romney would be in the same political party. That most, most, countries have political geographies and, and setups that allow for many more gradations in political belief, while our system as a heads or tails, winner take all system creates a space where there's no pathway towards electoral victory without partnership of all types of people with whom you disagree with on many issues. I, I think that, I think that like I said, you certainly could see uh, different parties sprout. Um, and, and I think you do see that more often at the local level. You've seen, for example, real victories by Democratic Socialists of America in places like Chicago and elsewhere, right? Um, at Working Families Party, right? But at a national level, it is just structurally impossible for such a thing to happen. And some people might be listening to you and thinking that reflects the ideal of, of the founders. Does, does what you describe this idea and nowhere else in the world would you have a party of Romney and uh, Trump uh, or a party of uh, Biden and, 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 and uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez? Is that a strength or a weakness of, of America? Uh, Wesley? Is it well, a- it's certainly not the ideal. I mean, the founders didn't have any singular ideals. They all hated each other. Uh, I'm sure some founder liked that idea. Um, I'm sure plenty well, of others. sort of Madisonian idea of pitching faction against faction so that no one ever really wins. Yeah, but I think in reality, what we see is that you see relatively mo- miltos moderate corporate politics always wins. So I don't think that's the enactment of what the founders thought of, right? What's well, also true, frankly, is the founders could not have foreseen this world, our founders didn't believe in multiracial democracy. So, you know, I, there's a there's a question of whether or not the system we have today fits the reality of what we have today. Uh, we live in a country that is diametrically and foundationally different than the country 
that our founders laid out the, the documents for. Um, I think most Americans, polling would suggest most Americans don't think this is working, whether or not it is what the founders wanted or not. A country where we can agree on 70% of, 70 of the country can agree on something and yet we can't pass a law to get it through is not what I think the founders had in mind for representative democracy. So what are we going to do about it, um, Wesley? What's the, the fix here? Uh, I mentioned uh, Carol Anderson's uh, white rage. She was also on the show um, uh, recently talking about her new book on voting. Um, One person, no vote. Her vote of suppression is destroying our democracy. Do you still have faith in American democracy? Is, is all this fixed politically by just simply going to the ballot box and voting against American white lash? This more and more diverse America. You mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that your book was triggered. The history of your book was triggered by or the period you're focusing on in the book is triggered by two things. Firstly, Obama's election. And secondly, the, demo, the recognition demographically that America was no longer a majority white country. I don't. I certainly don't think that anything is just fixed by voting. As Carol points out in her book, if we rig the system of who is allowed to vote and who has access to it, our multiracial democracy cannot work. Uh, we live in a society in which we make it easy for some people to exercise the franchise. We make it increasingly difficult for other people to exercise the franchise. We live in a democracy where some people's votes count and other people's don't. I live in the District of Columbia. I, I don't have a say in the right. Senate or- uh, Christian Cooper was on the show earlier this week. He, he makes that point and compares it with South Dakota or North Dakota. Correct, right? We live in a, we live in a country where some people's votes count more than others, right? And who do those people happen to be? <laughs> the beneficiaries of a racial caste system. And so, I, I don't think that, you know, I don't think that just voting fixes it, but I think that, I guess, you know, I'm not good at the what do we do about it question, in part because I think my job as a journalist is to lay out the problem. But what I will say yeah, is... Yeah, but you've got to address that. You can't write these kind of books and then just sort of say, well, hmm. I don't know how to fix it. Well, I mean, I can. I did. But, um, uh, you know, my job is to lay out the issue. Um, and I think that we can't lay out issues if we're unwilling to name them and talk about them directly. The, the reality is... We have lived through a, a historical moment that has clear precedent where our politics have been held captive by a powerful nativist mo uh, movement that seeks to upend multiracial democracy. And our liberal institutions have been unwilling to call that by what it is, which have disempowered those institutions from being able to serve as guardrails to that democracy. Um, I think the role of journalists is to is to tell the truth, and it's the role of everyone else to do something about it. Uh, Wesley, we, we've had other people on the show, populists like yourself. I, I mean, maybe you're not a populist, certainly progressive, radical progressives like Thomas Frank and Michael Lind, who see the future of American populism in terms of white and black and brown Americans marching together. Do you believe that uh, that the American white lash you talk about, this 30 or 40 percent of Americans who continue to vote for Trump or DeSantis, who are the core of the 
right wing of the Republican Party, can they be, so to speak, redeemed, saved? Can they be brought back into your vision of a multicultural, multiracial America? Or are they always going to now be losers, angry, violent, hostile to the American uh, dream? Well, I, I think it's, I, I don't I don't necessarily think it's true that, that people are locked into their political beliefs or their political stances. Um, but what I think is true is that this type of reactionary politics and rhetoric will always be something that can gain a following. And so if you, I mean, I think that sometimes we make the mistake of believing that people's beliefs don't change over time, right? Which is why there was such an obsession in the press with Obama voters who then voted for Donald Trump, as if one would preclude the other, as opposed to the reality that the politics of the Obama years might not inform someone's politics and then result in them voting for Donald Trump. That what we see among the Trump coalition and the current nativist movement are many people who were lifelong white Democrats, cops and firefighters, union uh, white working class types, right? And so when we talk about people who are Trump voters who are currently part of this nativist movement, again, I, I'm not even making any comment about them personally because I'm not thinking about or talking about them personally. I'm talking about them as a collective. But secondarily, I, I don't think it is true that such people cannot um, realize what's going on, cannot change their politics, cannot change their beliefs cannot behave in different ways, right? Um, I don't think that the way that, that happens is by, um, you, you know, but I think that the debate that happens very often on the left is a debate about whether or not the way to build such a coalition is by de-emphasizing questions of race and instead trying to build a collective class consciousness. Um, and yet um, that history suggests that that is a little naive and short-sighted. Final question, Wesley, simple one. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of America? I don't think I'm either. I think that I, I think that we are a country that chose to found itself on a racial caste system and that our battle, generation over generation, is how much we're willing to undo that. And I am optimistic in so much as there are people who are devoted to doing that work the way that, the way that there have been for every generation. But I'm also pretty clear-eyed that multiracial, multiracial democracy is not a given. It's actually a very young and new idea. It is not the status quo in this nation. It is the exception, not the rule. And that there are people who are actively out there aiming to undo it. And, and so even as we can be encouraged and excited by the people who are doing the hard work of defending it and expanding freedoms for different types of people, we have to be honest about the reality that there's an entire movement of people who would have us go back to being a different type of country.